It's Time for Truth, a ministry of Truth Family Bible Church in Middleton, Idaho. It's Time for Truth exists to glorify God through the edification of His saints in our local church and for the benefit of the church around the world. I'm your host, Pastor Danny Steinmeier, and I am joined in studio with my friend and fellow elder at TFBC, Jim Berg. Well, welcome one and all once again to another episode of the podcast. Thanks for making us part of your day. We really appreciate it. We hope that this is a blessing to you. We are looking forward to this episode today, and we hope that you enjoy it and are encouraged by it. We we really love these interview episodes, and so looking forward to our time together. Before we get into it today, Jim, how are you? Yeah, it's a good day to be thinking about the church, uh, given that Trump photo opportunity has happened as he's... Uh, being arraigned or checked in to be arrested in that what I would call a sham of an event uh, occurring. And we were just talking earlier about the comparison between Rudy Giuliani and his response to 9-11. And by the way, Rudy had a photo op with... Yeah, uh, he should have smiled. With the police as well. I think he should, right? have, I think yeah. he should have smiled and treated it like a joke. Yeah. And, <laughs> and comparing that to the Maui city manager who, when the fire department called and asked for more water, which is an absolute ludicrous weird process thing that you to have begin to do. with. Yeah. Um, he took five hours to respond, and now um, he's off, you know, unavailable right now. And, you know, my view is, A, he should be in jail and, and likely have a 9 millimeter put through his head. It's just, a, it's tragic the number of deaths that he caused by not allowing firefighters to fight fires. Who knew red tape can kill? Exactly. Right? Uh, that would be the definition of red tape. And so I, I need say permission to fight a fire with water. Yeah, and so I say it's good to talk <laughs> about the church because uh, you and I have talked about this. This idea of localization is coming at us fast and hard. As, as the world goes woke, complex processes like firefighting are going to break. So, so we need to be mindful about how we can try to, as much as possible, take care of ourselves and be prepared for those those things we need to be prepared for. Right. And self-sufficiency includes the church. Yep. So, Well, very good. Well, we are privileged to have in studio today uh, a, a wonderful uh, young man. And uh, we, unfortunately, he, he's flying solo today. We were uh, hoping to be able to have uh, his bride with him today. Uh, but she was just not uh, up to it uh, health-wise today. And so we just have Mike Scott in studio with us, and so we, we welcome you uh, to the studio. Thanks for joining oh, us. It's great to be here. Laura sends her apologies. She really wanted to be here, but the cold got the better of her this morning. We tried to, despite the medication and all that stuff, so she'll take a pass and uh, uh, give us a phone call. She'll fill you in on her life, too, if you'd like. Yeah, that's a great one, <laughs> right? Great. A great opportunity. Uh, yeah. Hey, we missed you, uh, but we want to hear from you, too. That would be great. Uh, but just privileged to have you. We, we are really glad that you are a part of our church, and we really yeah. think that these opportunities to interview folks um, from our church, uh, you don't have a, uh, a famous name or a big platform. Uh, you're not a, a Christian celebrity. You're uh, a, a man in our church, and, and we think these are really valuable for um, the people in our church to get to know you and to also appreciate the, the work of God that happens in the everyday life of His people. And um, it's not just about those who have a big name or, or have a platform. And so mm-hmm. this is an opportunity to get to know you. And once again, we just want to remind our listeners, uh, especially those within TFBC, um, this is a starting place. This is a 
This is an opportunity to get to know someone. Um, we're, we're, this is the cheat code, right? We are helping you get a lot of information about someone in advance. And this is an opportunity then for you to take the ball and move forward with uh, getting to know and to love the Scots and to befriend them, um, to also seek their counsel and wisdom as you hear the, their areas of knowledge and experience. And, uh, and, and Mike is a, a guy who's, who's got a lot of experience. Go ask it. him questions. Absolutely. That's right. That's right. And, Absolutely. and build, build friendships from this. Um, this is not sufficient for, um, uh, for everything you need to have in relationship to the Scots. This is the, the, really the starting place. And where we want to start is really um, uh, at, at the beginning. I, I think it would just be helpful because I, I think it's, I think for, in your case, Mike, it's, uh, it, I think it's deceiving. Um, how old are you, sir? Uh, 73, going on 74 pretty quick here. <laughs> Very good. Well, and you're, 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 a, you're a, spry, uh, a spry man and, and one who just uh, is, uh, that's what I mean, it's, de- it's deceptive because I, I don't think that we would anticipate that that would be your age, but yet, um, so I, I think we want to honor you and, and recognize, um, you know, you know your, your value to the body, you know, and that's one of the things that we value, Jim, is, is it's important for us to, um, to care about and respect those who uh, have lived in, uh, in the church and, and, and who have wisdom of, of years on them. And so we, we, we definitely appreciate you being a part of us. No, I uh, totally agree. And Mike has runner's knees, we call them. I've talked about, I, I walk every morning, and I told him that. And then I've added bicycling recently. And so it's kind of an hour walk and an hour bicycling. And Mike said he hasn't given up running yet. And at 70-something, I, I can't even imagine running now. Like, I think it should be legal. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's uh, you know, I guess I've been blessed with that, but it's the one thing that I've done consistently coming back to it, you know, when you, you, you get out of the habit and so on and so forth, but coming back to it. And so it's, it's helped, I think through the years, uh, to some, to some degree. Well, maybe that's a good place to start. How much do you, uh, run these days? Well, it, it, you know, I'm, I'm heading back to 20 miles a week or 22 miles a week is what I typically have done. And it was at drop from about 30 every decade. It seems to drop a few, but, uh, now I'm I, right now I'd, I'd be lucky. I'm lucky. I'm just kind of finding finding my way back here after some health issues coming up, coming around. But um, but you know I'm doing about fifteen a week now. So that's pretty that's pretty back. good. Yeah, yeah. it's amazing. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's go back. Uh, let's turn back the clock uh, a ways here, and let's go back to some of the beginning. Uh, well, where did you grow up? Uh, tell us a little bit about your your family life, your background uh, growing up, and uh, and we'll go from there. Yeah, um, Seattle, Washington. Uh, Bellevue <laughs> specifically, and um, you know, uh, to, to Jim's comments when we opened this morning, it's just um, a person my age, um, and uh, uh, you know, and it's not that I'm that old, but the world we live in today is virtually unrecognizable to those of us who are, you know, over sixty years old. I think, and when you were raised in the era that we were raised, um, we were uh, living in ignorant bliss about a lot of stuff that now has been revealed and so on and so forth. But really growing up in Seattle was was rather idyllic at that, at that time. Um, Seattle was an up-and-coming city that, you know, a lot of people back east had never heard of. They still thought there was Indians running around out there. Um, but we uh, grew up in a, in a blue-collar household. My dad got out of the Navy, uh, and um, he got a job at Boeing and took a job there and did very well as an airplane mechanic. 
and inspector, and then he decided he needed to be the entrepreneur. And my grandfather was in the furniture business. He was a manufacturer's representative for for furniture companies, and he would do he would travel around and uh, and I got to go to the to the shows sometimes with them down in San Francisco was a big show, and back in Chicago was later on. But so I, I kind of was familiar with that business, and um, my dad took uh, on a partnership with my grandfather, and they moved forward and created this this wonderful business. And my dad did extremely well at it. He was always really good with people. People liked him, and and uh, did a, a trip every year, sometimes twice a year, through Montana all the way back to you know clear over to the to the north dakota border and uh on the highland and back and uh, took him a two-week trip and people were very loyal to him and he built his business there and that's kind of the way i grew up and my dad worked my mom stayed at home um he was a non-believer uh at the beginning and i watched him in his life where he came out of an alcoholic household family and um he gave up drinking early on. Said, "I'm, I'm not. That's not coming into our house." Uh, he, uh, he then began to conform. That was even before he was saved. Gave up the smoking. Got pictures of him building the church, the little church that we went to up in Bellevue, Washington, where he helped with that, with a cigarette in his mouth up on the roof, pounding nails. And um, I saw him transformed into a very godly man that really uh, took God's word seriously. They began tithing regularly. They became very faithful. Our home became the center of social, um, uh, some of the social events in our church uh, very regularly. So we had people in our home constantly. We had missionaries staying there uh, constantly as my dad had a real interest in missions. And um, of course he came through that process to know the Lord. And there was just wonderful guys in our church that took him under the wing. And so we grew up in, in a pretty normal household. I love baseball, and my mom started giving me violin lessons from the teacher that she had. She was an excellent violinist and um, really could have gone on to a professional career, but decided to raise children and be a, be a housewife and be a mom. So that's where we, where we started out. No, that's wonderful. And, and uh, so how did you uh, come to the Lord yourself? My mom was uh, going to church and taking me with her to a small church, First Baptist Church of Eastgate, Eastgate, which was a, a GARBC church, General Association of Regular Baptists, and there were many, many jokes about that that <laughs> went around. <laughs> they, they ate a lot of broccoli or something, right? <laughs> right, yeah. And so, um, at any rate, we uh, uh, were going to church, and I was, uh, was quite interested in that. I had a younger sister at the time. She was born in 56, and that's about the time that uh, we started going to this little church and that was getting formed there in Eastgate. And uh, the pastor was just a wonderful old Baptist preacher and preached the gospel and, uh, uh, and was not very sophisticated in expository teaching as we, as we count that today. But boy, that church grew and uh, many people came to the Lord. There were baptisms constantly there and we just had a thriving church. And uh, so that's where I got saved, kneeling behind the recliner in our house one day with my mom and um but you know that got repeated again i was unsure of my salvation and i thought you know what does it mean to invite jesus into your heart what does what does that mean and where do i find that language in scripture 
And as I grew, uh, visited my cousins, which were down in Crescent City, California, and we went to a vacation Bible school at a little white Methodist church there, and I went forward there again. And my cousins did as well. Uh, and um, so I, I was a little bit unsure about that. And as time went on, as I got to be a teenager, um, became very active in the youth group and church life, um, I, I, I felt like I needed more education in that area because um, I, I hadn't ever looked at what reform people believed, quote unquote, and that was a, a foreign word to me. Calvin was not uh, a, a good subject to discuss in the Baptist church at that time. <laughs> right. And um, so I got to doing a little study, and I went to, a West, to Western Baptist Bible College, which was down in El Cerrito, California, in the Bay Area at the time. They moved up to Salem, Oregon, and I was a music major there, but getting um, a good education and understanding what it meant to be saved. And that I gained. I gained confidence in my salvation that certainly uh, the decision that I thought I had made completely on my own and had come to the conclusion that Jesus was my, my Lord and my Savior. And um, uh, then rededicated, you know, we had rededication services, all that uh, uh, through the Baptist church, you, where you would, you would throw the branch in the fire, you know, and, and, and you would confess your sins and so on and have fellowship with Christ. But then, uh, um, I, you know, I, I realized that I was born again, that's for sure. But where I really got the education is when I got married, married Laura, and uh, she was uh, also in our church, came kind of in my junior year, and I was very struck with this young lady that was there. And um, uh, so we ended up getting married, to make a long story story a little bit longer, and went down That's to... That's what we're hoping for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we went down to um, uh, to go to school in Southern California. I was, uh, got a, a, a scholarship to go to uh, USC down there and violin performance. And... Um, so when we arrived down there, we were looking for a church, and someone recommended John MacArthur's church. Um, and we began to really learn what it was, uh, how the how the the local church, um, when it when you conform to Scripture with elder rule, and with the way it ought to function, which was not the way our little Baptist church functioned functioned growing up. Um, we we learned really what it was all about, and it started to come together and make sense. And that's where we actually began to recognize that the decision we had made, that I had made, and that Laura herself had made, was one that God had orchestrated before the foundations of the world, and that we had been chosen before the foundations of the world. And therefore, God's providence began to be uh, a subject of our conversation in life on how God has led us to many, many different things. Well, that's neat. Uh, I really appreciate that. And and. Yeah, I want to get more onto this uh, Providence thing, and and uh, let's let's step back for a second. And um, how, how long have you been married? And let's talk, I want to hear a little bit more about um, what it what it meant to be. What would you say uh, you were really struck with uh, this this young lady struck that by you, her. struck by her? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, you know. Is, was there violence in this thing? Uh, <laughs> do we need to uh, unpack? But what what was it? Uh, how long have you been married? And, and tell us a little bit about. Um, uh, you're coming together with your wife. Yeah, that that's a, that's a question I like to ask people, how they met, how yeah. they got going, yeah. And Laura and I, uh, we met, I think, first when she was sitting with a friend of mine across the aisle, and I'm looking at her, and I nudged my friend Tom Ruhlman, who was the pastor's son, and uh, Tom and I have uh, 
been lifelong friends. And I nudged Tom next to me, and I said, "Who? Who's that? Who's that beautiful girl over there?" And he said, "Oh, uh, yeah, I think she just came from I don't know Rich Richland. Why I don't know where she came from, but she showed up here." And uh, and then I'm thinking, how in the world did Ray Wheeler? notice her before I noticed her. And so that became my quest. <laughs> and pretty soon we were dating and going to the functions together. And uh, uh, we uh, decided then at the end of when, when I went off to college, she was a year younger than I, I went to Western Baptist. And um, so this was in high school that you met? Yeah, okay. in high school. It was junior year of high school. And uh, we had a very active youth group and we were fellowshipping with a lot of other churches. <laughs> So um, make, to, to, to kind of wrap it up here, the, we ended up getting married uh, and setting a, a date for marriage, and that was when uh, in my second year of college, and we moved to Salem, Oregon, where the school had moved from El Cerrito. So Western Baptist took on a campus there. It is now known as Corbin University, and they've done quite well, I think, in training. They're a good school. Uh, they, along with uh, Los Angeles Baptist College, have morphed into... Uh, very different paths. Uh, they're training really professionals in, you know, education and various uh, disciplines, professional disciplines at Corbin, rather than uh, being a, a school that, that's uh, training pastors. Uh, and Los Angeles Baptist College, of course, became, uh, became uh, what is now our pastor sitting in front of me here has graduated from Master's College and uh, of course, that has uh, morphed into a, just a marvelous seminary. So we we had mutual friends. Tom Roman went to that Los Angeles Baptist College way back when, and um, uh, we've remained lifelong friends with him. And Laura and I have uh, just grown. I think uh, you, you think when you're young, it's a different thing. It's it's a lot of hormones running. It's a lot of a lot of um, ups and downs emotionally. I think those are, you learn how, we grew up as kids together. So we learned how to communicate with one another, what works and what doesn't. Uh, when when things didn't work, it was the silent treatment for two days, which just uh, uh, blew me away. I couldn't stand that. So I <laughs> determined I was going to do my best <laughs> not to get the silent treatment and to uh, to wise up in the way I communicated but we've learned a lot in our in our youth and growing up, and uh, I I just uh, I love the woman today far more than I ever thought I could. Mm -hmm. And uh, she and, and how I. Many, how many years have you been married? Uh, fifty three. Fifty three. Wow, that's great. yeah, yeah. And so, and it's it's uh, you know I, for for those of you out there that are young and starting out, we look around our church body today, and we are just thrilled to see young families and uh, to see kids getting married, committing to the Lord. And I, I, I think the thing that really has been the rock of our marriage is that we vowed at the very, uh, the very beginning of it, not to say the D word, divorce should not come into our language. We will work it out. And there's been times when we've had very difficult times, you know, working things out in, in our marriage. But uh, God has always been merciful and gracious to us as we've looked to Him for help, and finally those things have gotten resolved in that, in in, in that framework, in that reference. The Scripture is where we go. Well, good, and maybe also share with us a little bit about your um, uh, your life together in terms of your family. You know, I, my first tangential connection to you uh, was through your son, 
and uh, and daughter-in-law and their family, and uh, they've visited us a, a, a few times. Maybe just tell us a little bit about your your family and and uh, uh, fifty-three years is a, is a long time. Maybe just a, a few details of of some of those things. Yeah, we've we've grown into quite a crowd now. We have um, uh, we have three children. Uh, Jennifer's the oldest, and uh, then we have. Josh was second, and then Emily came along, and Emily is now attending our church, of course, married to Matt Heim, and uh, they have three boys, so we have our grandkids near us here, three of them. Most of the people at church will be familiar with the f- reality that you uh, you play a mean violin or fiddle, depending on uh, depending on what we're uh, what we're doing and what the context is, but um, that that uh, that you are a musician, and and that you you actually have a lot of care and interest we hope to get more to some of your thoughts on on music but in terms of just t- talk about a little bit your experience and background with the violin yeah my mom having been a violinist um she she got me with her teacher who was a hungarian uh, <coughs> teacher that uh, had had done uh, a lot of european concertizing and so on and so forth was a, a fairly well-known guy in seattle francis Aranyi, and i began taking lessons from him and um, he uh, he died rather suddenly when I was in my junior year of high school, and uh, then I, I went with uh, the concertmaster of the Seattle Symphony, uh, Henry Siegel, and was a student of his. Uh, but you know, I I guess um, there was a, a time when my mom said, you know what? I kept looking out the window when I was practicing at the kids playing ball, and I loved playing sandlot ball when I was a kid, baseball, and. Um, I don't know if I ever would have been really good at it or not, but I loved it. And uh, she said, "You're going to have to make a decision. You're going to practice, or you're going to, are you going to go play sandlot ball?" And I thought, "You're going to well, fritter your I, life away with silliness, or are you going to play <laughs> the, <laughs> the violin?" Yeah, and uh, you know the, uh, you know we, we we struggle probably like all parents do, but y- you got to let your kids try things, right? You have to. You have to let them uh, have exposure to to various things, and I think it's it's uh, incumbent on parents to be sensitive to that with their kids, to try to you know say if they have an interest in something, let them try it, let them get a teacher, you know, violin teacher or piano teacher or uh, whatever it is they they have an interest in to to try to foster that. Well, some sometimes those are fleeting things. Most of the time, I would say they're fleeting things, but. Um, most of us that um, came around to play professionally, um, if if you really aren't grounded in violin playing or in a uh, in an instrument by the time you're eight or nine years old, it probably isn't going to happen for you. So those years are critical. So if you expose your kids as I was exposed, and I made the decision, you know what, Sandlot Ball isn't important to me is playing the violin. So I went went on with that. Uh, and um, in the era that we grew up, uh, you know, working for the man was something you did not want to do in the 1960s. Let's bring that back. And <laughs> it was, uh, what's your bag, you know, and uh, do your own thing and uh, all of that. And so um, I ended up uh, going into music because it was the only thing that really interested me at the time. And so I went to when I went to Western Baptist College, uh, they didn't even have a music teacher there. So I was taking lessons from a guy that on the on the Berkeley campus, um, and he was concertmaster of the Oakland Symphony. And so I began to study with him. Um, and then uh, when I came up to Western Baptist College, I studied with the with the music director at um, at Willamette University, 
who was a violinist and studied with him and that's where i way i i auditioned rather to get into uh to to usc so it, it one thing led to another and then uh, i had uh, great teachers at usc most of whom were studio players uh in the los angeles area um and i began to to play down there professionally uh here and there in town after my graduation and during during the time i was there and they got me uh you know into a lot of recording things and and uh oh, did a lot of things with uh uh with the the music director at grace church was actually music director at hanna barbera, hanna barbera studios so he connected me i got connected with hanna barbera and the, these guys are some of the finest um players in the world that are playing in the in the professional music arena down there as backup for uh, different professional artists and so on and so forth. And so I learned a great deal down there in that regard. We decided at one point we needed to get the kids back up to Washington, uh, be near their grandparents. We felt that was a priority. So we ended up uh, moving out of there when I was kind of eight, probably seven or eight years into my professional career there. And beginning to do some some pretty more important things there and I realized that I that I, that I could have a career playing and uh, so it was tough to leave that but in Seattle we ended up picking that up in Seattle Washington and I began playing in the theaters and was concert master of a, a community orchestra there so I got to do some solo work and uh, we had a string quartet that was very active in the community um, and then I became member of a professional group called the Northwest Chamber Orchestra, was principal second there. And uh, so got really involved in the music playing there. But that, through the years, as you have a family, is all nights, weekends. Hmm. You know how that goes. And I'm thinking, man, I, I, I really don't want to continue doing this into my latter years where I'm just nights and weekends and gone and, and the family suffers. And so my father, who was in the furniture business with my granddad, that's where the connection came. Mm. And um, we I formed a, re, a uh, uh, relationship with my dad and we had a business and so on and so forth. So we, we started business there in Seattle and in the furniture business. Well, let's get to that furniture thing in just a second. I, um, any, uh, any interesting connections, um, Anything that we would recognize that you uh, had a role in playing the the music for? Any uh, any any interesting <laughs> it's a uh, setup question? <laughs> anything, any, any interesting characters or people that you've uh, come across or had uh, um, opportunity to to play with? Well, uh, <laughs> it could be a little embarrassing. I don't know if anybody still remembers <clears throat> Barry White, but I did an awful lot of recording for Barry White. And, uh, and good enough for your love, baby. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> I see there is one guy that remembers Barry White. Yeah, Just, enough, right. just enough. I'm not going to comment. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I, 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 was, I wasn't deep enough. He's but, got a you know, love yeah. reputation. Let's yeah. just say that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I did string tracks for a lot of groups back uh, in the rock era, but you know the... The thing was, they were transitioning at that point in time in the late 60s and early 70s into more digital kinds of things that was coming around a lot in the studios, so they were using studio tracks more. And, um, I, I toured, toured a lot. When I got up to Seattle, um, uh, we did tours with everybody, um, I think, up there. Um, Kenny G was a studio player at the time in Seattle, and then he, he made it pretty big with saxophone playing, and so we... We did some tours with Kenny and um, Steve Eady, uh, Steve Lawrence, Edie Gourmet were 
were regulars up in Seattle doing, they'd had a, a show that they were taking around. And so we, we did some touring with them. Um, boy, I, I think, man, just about it. Rod Stewart. I mean, all of the big name acts that you could probably think of back then, um, including Pavarotti came to town and, and we did a lot of work with, uh, with them and just backup orchestra stuff. When they would come to town, they mm -hmm. would hire good musicians in cities like Seattle where they had a pretty high level of players. And, um, so, uh, and, and, uh, in the, in the theater, um, I played most all of the musicals there. I ended up being concert master at, at, uh, Paramount. Um, and, uh, when, uh, when, uh, Miss Saigon came around, there was auditions for that. And I won the uh, audition for, for concert master with Miss Saigon and they wanted me to go on tour and the tour was lucrative, but I thought, you know, there's no way I'm, I'm, I'm not going on tour any place and leaving the family and so on so um but uh stuck around seattle and it all worked out extremely well until um i felt like gee it's it might be time to hang it up mm. and uh so i went to work with my dad and i i started uh working during the day in the furniture business but yeah there was uh i you know i, I don't think I, I could name all kinds of people that i've worked no, with down good. there i was the only violin for <laughs> One, for one thing, on uh, a show called "Damn Yankees," which um, uh, th which you'll you'll probably recognize a lot, but Jerry Lewis bought the show and was touring with that, and so um, I was a sole violinist in the group there, playing playing uh, some of the some of the violin stuff, and got acquainted with some of these folks um, on a on a very casual basis. Jerry Lewis was not one; he was fairly aloof, but uh, Mickey Rooney and um, Oh, I don't know. Uh, there was, I, I could go back and probably go through that. I think it's no, that's interesting. It, I, think, I think that's good. Uh, well, it just also just shows that literally you're no amateur violinist. Uh, you, you've you've made a lot of uh, rounds. You've you've well because here's the other thing. There's touring, right? There's performances, um, but there's also practicing, right? You, you don't just um, you, you don't just show up. Typically, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, you don't just show up one day and what are we playing today? Uh, you know, there's there's practice, there's work that you put into that as yeah. well. So yeah. there's there's a lot of that. Well, uh, let's go to that business uh, element. So you you saw an opportunity to transition, um, which obviously you you, you maintain a, the ability to play uh, an instrument, but now you really are look are refocusing uh, for the sake of uh, providing and and the the care for your family in a new new direction and. Uh, a better work-life balance and, and a new direction. Um, what does it mean for you to be in the furniture business? What what is it? What is your furniture business? It's neat though, just real quick that he's oh, yeah. he's always focused on that as his higher priority. Mm -hmm. So even in all of his discussions on the music, it was I'm not going to go on tour because of the priority of your family. And Mike, that's that's critical as we talk to younger people about how do they manage their priorities. And part of that is actually a transition away from something you're gifted at into the furniture business, yeah. right? And yeah. that's just weighing a higher priority, which is so important. That's a great point. So Yeah, you can't, uh, our, our our philosophy has always been that work is a, uh, a means of supporting your family. It's a tool that you use to support your family. It's not the end all. And uh, if you let it become the end all uh, and be all in your life, as the world would counsel you, to do, you know, those that work hard and so on and so forth, uh, seem to make it where those that don't work hard, uh, don't, they, they fail. My whole 
life has been a testimony to the fact, I think, that when you treat that as a tool, that is your, your livelihood as a tool, that um, things come into balance with your family more. You can spend more time with them. And uh, I think that's and you, critical. And, and the Lord provides, and you have enough. And you have right? enough, and you have enough. And you may not be you know, the best in the world. I, I worked a lot with people. Um, I think of Roy Clark, for example. We, we got to know them on the tour quite well, and, and uh, the, the guys that travel with him. And I asked him, how in the world did he get so talented? He could play so many instruments and play them well. So we were all marveling at that. And he said, well, it was just... I, I was obsessed by violin playing at one point, and I was obsessed with guitar playing at one point. And unless you become obsessed with your career, and eventually, of course, he, he got good at lots of things and uh, uh, was you know the consummate musician. He could do just about anything. But, but the work was his life, and there was nothing else. Mm-hmm. And uh, these people have failed lives, and that's what I recognized in the studio business um, when I was working with a lot of studio players down there, very, very fine players, and uh, none of them, I, I'm telling you, none of them had a consistent family life with mm. children. And they all uh, in some way grieved over that. But it's not possible to get to those levels and to maintain those those levels, I, I don't think, without doing damage to others around you. Mm. Uh, that's very good. I'm glad you uh, highlighted that. So very good. Well, your business uh, started to develop. This was a connection, at least, to a family business. Well, is, is what you're doing today um, the same thing that your uh, grandfather uh, was doing? Is this the same business? Even? No, no, actually not. My grandfather was a salesman, so was my dad uh, and representative for various furniture companies. Um, we got working. It's an interesting story. We we started to we were in the in the furniture business and selling retail with Broyhill and with some Paoli chair and with others that had residential furniture. And uh, it morphed into doing more commercial furniture. And so we got working with hotels and resorts at that time in, in the business. And we had a line called Arway Furniture. They're long gone now, but they were they were doing uh, commercial and office furniture and uh, uh, in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Um, and um, so... Uh, I I began to work with a company that was local, my dad and I, in making furniture locally for the hotel trade. And finally, that company offered me a job and said, would you like to come on on board? Because we want to start, we want to get more out of the educational furniture and into commercial furniture. So I came aboard and began bringing them jobs for hotels. Uh, And that eventually morphed into... um, Going in business for myself, Laura and I, when we left the area, we, we actually uh, left as um, still employed by a company called Sensor, which was up in Seattle, Washington. And um, uh, I set up an office in Southern California because we were doing a lot of work in Mexico uh, using uh, Mexican uh, factories that were in Tijuana uh, to make furniture for hotels and resorts because we we couldn't do metal work it's quite a different thing so i learned the manufacturing business really while i was at that uh particular uh, factory up there and utilizing uh them and then they decided that they were going another direction and uh they said uh you know we'll pay you out two years of your salary uh for a severance and that allowed us to get going to start making furniture ourselves and we started manufacturing in canada 
And uh, we had a manufacturing plant in Mexico. I was in Mexico probably three times a week working down there until things really got uh, dicey with the cartels in Tijuana. And uh, uh, just one quick story, we had a manufacturer right next to the building, in the building that we were in in Tijuana, manufacturing um, case goods and metal and things. And uh, the, the, the factory next was, was in, in, in soft goods. They were doing uh, fully upholstered furniture. And the cartels were constantly badgering them and us to, uh, to put drugs into the furniture packaging going across the border at Otay mm. Mesa. And um, uh, it's, an, it, it, it's an interesting story because um, you would think that this would be all very clandestine, and it isn't. It's all out in the open in, in Mexico because the the cartels are working with the police as well, and they're hand-in-hand, hand, so you, you have no one to trust. But but finally, one day, we came to work, and the uh, the factory owners, it was crime tape everywhere on a Monday morning, and I got to the to the uh, police officer that was standing there, and I said, what happened? And, and he told me um, that the owners had been murdered on Friday night, and, uh, in, and they knew it was the cartels because most of them had... Uh, numerous bullet holes, and they wanted to make a show of this. Those guys had refused to put the drugs into the furniture and so on. So I looked at my business partner down there, and I, I said, uh, Roberto, it's time. we we got to get out of here. So we moved to a different part of Tijuana, down in Tecate area, and uh, set up manufacturing there. But um, back to the manufacturing part of it, it's a different business, and uh, Laura and I started to make every mistake You know, she was helping with uh with setting up the business it was just she and i when we first started um and we uh, uh we started in san diego and uh, grew the business until josh joined us um after getting done at viola and then uh, my son-in-law matt and we we went from mexico and canada to uh, explore china when that first came around in about 1994 uh or i'm sorry 2004 uh, that's right. I'm ten decade behind. 2004, we started investigating China, and uh, China got to the point where we could not control what was going on there. They uh, they simply would not comply with uh, with our QC people that we had hired, and uh, they would would ship things incorrectly, and that cost us a lot of money. Finally, we we moved from there down to Vietnam, and that's we've been in Vietnam since about 2012 right now, and we're we're doing. Well, and I think you know what I, I, is, is that I, a competitive space? Is there are there a uh, lot of people that are vying for the contracts of hotels? And oh businesses? my goodness, yes, and that's and that's what I was about to say is that uh, we we would go to the shows uh, just as a little tiny company, and we're competing against these guys that are spending more on the show than probably we we made in a year, and uh, wondering how in the world this ever happened, but. That gets back to the providence of God story, um, where we have noticed in our lives that um, God has continued to bless us, even though we don't advertise. We it's word of mouth kind of thing. We've been doing business with the largest uh, timeshare um, company in the world, which is Wyndham Resorts, and uh, and they have gone through several uh, different changes at Wyndham, which have been a challenge to us, but we've kept their business. And we continue to this day to do business with with Wyndham, and that has supported three families, and continuing to do so. So it's an amazing thing to me to watch the hand of God in our lives, um, not only supplying me, who is not the most gifted violinist in the world, with 
um, with some of the finest teachers in the world and a career opportunity at USC um, by giving me a scholarship, which uh, basically I walked into. And that's just, uh, here's where it began, is that I walked into the dean's office when I got down there and praying for where we should go to school between uh, Washington, Stanford, had been accepted to Stanford and Washington and USC. And I walked into the office and I said, Lord, give us a confirmation we really made the right decision. And um, I'm walking out the door and the secretary said, Michael, I just put your name in for a scholarship. I said, oh, thank you. And, and thought nothing more about it, thought it was a small scholarship and so on and so forth. Well, it ended up, um, I was awarded the Norman Topping Fellowship down there, which was a full ride scholarship through my doctorate if I wished to keep it worth tens of thousands of dollars even then. And um, I went back into that office and I, I, I spoke to the secretary again. I said, you just arbitrarily picked me. How did you pick that? She says, well, we needed a white guy. We'd filled all the minorities. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> you talk about reverse discrimination, right? But anyway, uh, so that was my scholarship story, and I could have gone on to my doctorate. So you got was... your scholarship purely on skill. <laughs> the to- token white guy. <laughs> well, I, you know, and I guess that's the secret I've let out of the bag now. Right? <laughs> I, I, I was never the most gifted violinist, but I sure had a lot of lucky breaks. <laughs> yeah, you sure, you sure had white skin. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. No, that's funny. No, that's interesting, and that's that's a neat story to 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 hear that. And you know, because uh, that was something that you reflected on with me even recently as you you know look back at things you consider your business which is still you know um uh, functioning well and and providing for families is, is that you know how how in the world did, did you get here right you were reflecting on the on again that providence to see the hand of god moving in your life and and to uh to go from a a violin background and education and so forth to being a guy that's uh, running a business and and working out of Vietnam, uh, you know, just you were just marveling at at where the Lord had brought you, and yeah. you know, yeah. who, who would have thought that, that wasn't part of your dream uh, your dream work in tw- twelve years old, right? You weren't no, you know, nobody no, maps no. it out that way. Nobody maps it out that way, right? No, you never could have, you know, written a more incongruous story. But um, I, I guess that's where I come to the province providence of God, because um, all of these things seem to fall in my lap. And I, I think we, we would pray that the Lord will lead and direct through circumstance. Uh, but I think the combination there that we tried to keep all, always was not only to obey what God wanted us to do with our priorities, with our family, with ourselves, with our lives being in church, and so on and so forth, um, uh, but and, and, and also placing work where it rightly belongs, which is as a tool to uh, to support and to do the things that God wants us to do, um, and and a, and a worthwhile one, by the way, a great pursuit you know, that that one should never take, uh, not take seriously. That you you need to focus on your work is important to the Lord, but um, but when you do that, things seem to fall in place, and uh, lots of the world told me, you know, and all of these. Um, these seminars that I, I would go to on occasion to try to learn, try to motivational, you know, seminars that would uh, jack you up. They all said, you look, you, you focus on this to be the best. And no matter how long it takes, if you're 18 hour days, 20 hour days, doesn't matter. If you work hard at it, you're going to make your own luck. 
I never found that true. And just one quick story is one time we, we were in, not knowing, we built a house down in Southern California in, in San Diego, and we didn't know where the next house payment was going to come from because we just lost a big contract. And um, we had uh, four grandkids that we raised, uh, two Jennifer's uh, four kids that um, that uh, had no place to go and were going to go in foster homes. We took them and took them in down there uh, in San Diego with us. And so I said, well, look, it's important that we go on vacation and just relax and think about this for a while. So we went to Kings Canyon. There are two phones in Kings Canyon, uh, pay phones. And uh, oh, every day I would go check my messages on the phone to see what was going on. And we, didn't, we were going to put the house up for sale when we got back from Kings Canyon, a house that we just built. And so the the third day of our trip, I get a call from somebody in Detroit, Michigan, that we had supplied furniture to 10 years before, nine years before, something like that. Um, and uh, he said, Mike, I want you to come out to Detroit. I'm going to fly out there, and uh, we're, we're going to redo our, our whole 100-room hotel. And for us, that was massive, big job, 100-room hotel. You know, we were doing smaller hotels at the time. And uh, so... Now, how did that happen? I picked that up on the cell phone. I mean, there were no cell phones at the time there, or they were there in their early stages, and cell towers weren't around. And I picked this up, and I go, um, we had been praying. You know, what do we do, Lord? We're going to put the house up for sale and help us sell it, and we'll we'll move from there. And the Lord stepped in at that point, and he has done so. And I could, I could re- re- recite a few more stories where that same thing has happened, where God has led in those kinds of ways to clearly show us what we should do and to, to pull our bacon out of the fire, so to speak. Yeah, no, no one would design, no one would design a business right now to have one large customer <laughs> to where you're riding the razor's edge of one relationship. Yeah. Like you're, you're one relationship away from complete upheaval yeah. and complete dependence on God. Mm. But the reality is every one of us are riding the razor's edge and we are dependent on God, whether we know it or not. Amen. It's such that. an important concept that we miss. We don't see it, but it doesn't change the dependency. No. So many men think I've got five customers. Look how well I am doing. Mm. God can take five away as fast as he can one. Yeah. And Boy, if true? you don't put your family and if you don't put those priorities right first, he just doesn't honor that. You can be and we talked about this. You could be rich. You could have 20 customers. It, lo- it looks good for a little while. You could have 20 customers and a lot of money, mm-hmm. but your family's deteriorating. You cannot skip God's ordinary means and his ordinary principles of priorities. And if you follow those principles and priorities, uh, there is security in that, right. I think, in terms of, well, this may not work out, and it's, there's always fear in the unknown. But when, you, when, when God is leading and you are watching for that leading in your life, I think uh, things will work out well. And by working out well, that doesn't mean that you may get richer or or uh, you'll have a lot more money or more physical possessions, but God will take care of you. And that's the one thing that we uh, I wouldn't trade for the world, to, to, to live with a business that um, at any, I could pick up the phone one day and it's gonna be gone. Yeah. Uh, that places you in a position of having to trust God. See, that's that, exactly what I was going to say. That fear is a fear of failing or providing, which is completely understandable. But the reality is, is it requires faith. And that's the key yeah. to it is, is being faith, understanding where it comes from, being faithful to God, and then being dependent on God. That's right. So. That's right. Yeah. And, and seeking to be obedient in, 
and, and uh, wise in all those decisions, knowing that those things are possible, then doing your your best to honor him in all those other ways uh, with the, the use of your finances, the use of your time, and all those things. And I think, Mike, as you said, you see him provide over and over <coughs> and over again, which does what? It grows your faith. And now you're growing in your sanctification process because yeah. you're seeing God in all those things. Yeah, that's been a huge contributor, I think, to our trusting God and to growing in our faith. And I just, I look back on my life and we didn't always uh, do things that way in our life. There were lapses. And uh, I look back on those with regret. But uh, God brought us back from every one of those lapses by slapping us upside the head in some way to get our attention and then to come back to, uh, to our principles. It's not a linear thing sometimes in a, in a Christian's life. And we still look at families and say, boy, you know, I wish we could be like that family. They have no trouble, you know, in their lives and so on. Come to find out when you do look back on your life and you see those families that you thought had no trouble, they had all kinds of problems and all kinds of things went wrong. And uh, God is in the trouble. And that's what you got to learn is the Lord is in the trouble. Is It's not that he prevents you from having trouble, but he's in it. Well, that's really that's really good, uh, and if you're not hearing uh, someone that you should uh, be talking to and getting to know and asking questions from, uh, then you're not uh, you don't have ears to hear. Uh, you need you need to mm-hmm. be be mindful of these things. That's wonderful. Uh, I don't know how long we've been going here, but I don't want to stop, and so I want us to uh, just uh, pick back up on this um, element of your background with music. Uh, I think it's so important. I just want to remind everybody uh, from TFBC if you have. Um, musical interest, if you have musical talent and ability in playing an instrument. Uh, Here's someone who can provide also some counsel and some wisdom on some directions and some advice for you, but also um, how to uh, also be a part of some of the the arrangements and music that we want to do at TFBC. And so I want to encourage you to talk to Mike and and be involved in that way. But I want to just... uh, kind of turn it back to a little bit of, look, you've got a lot of background. You've been involved in the church, in church music. Uh, you've studied a lot of history of, uh, and music and so forth. And I, I, I warned him in advance that I, I wanted to um, uh, push the button on the back of his uh, back of his head uh, and, and push play and, uh, and ask for a few thoughts on um, church music, uh, on some thoughts that you have about uh, direction and focus or different things like that. And and just hear from some of your perspective. And how are we doing? Yeah, those things. Yeah, well, I, I think wonderfully well. Actually, I there's there's a couple of things that bother me. I I've never, um, yeah, you really have pushed a button here. Um, <laughs> where do I start? I've never been a fan of quote unquote Christian music. Um, I I turned with, I, I I toured with. Uh, uh, did a couple of tours with Ralph Carmichael and with uh, you know Sandy Patty and some of the top Christian artists, and it's a business like every other business, and it is not at the forefront of their uh, of their of their mind. They are not thinking about glorifying God. They're thinking about making a living. Uh, has been my experience. Um, uh, I talked to, to Melody Green at length one time on the phone with a friend who's uh, Steve Green's uh, wife, and they've they wrote some music. He's a very prominent uh, Christian artist back in the uh, in the '60s and early '70s until his untimely death. And um, uh, she said, in the tour that they did, they were in every major large evangelical church in the country. 
numerous times, and she said I could count the, the, the number of pastors of those churches who were really sold out to the Lord on the fingers of one hand. And uh, I, I think that's true. I, I, I think that the Christian music world is um, a, a mimic or, or a, uh, uh, they copy what the world is doing and, and put it into Christian terms for the audience's sake. So that's that's one thing. So the the other thing is that the as you as many of you out there <laughs> have noticed, hymn singing um, has not been uh, uh, prominent in Christian churches. The things that I've noticed that disappeared in our lives have been the hymns number one that we sang as as kids, and uh, gospel songs too that came out of the period say between I don't know eighteen nineties and probably nineteen thirties or forties. Um, and, and many of those are quite good, but, but that's when hymn singing disappeared, was about the, the turn of the 20th century. And um, I, I believe that bringing that back is extremely valuable for a couple of reasons, and that's why we appreciated TFBC's focus on hymns. It's because the hymns that I sang as a kid and that many of my friends sang as kids that have now kind of disappeared from the repertoire were things that were very meaningful to us at that time and taught us doctrine, which we didn't really realize at the time, but we we picked it up. You didn't even know you were learning. No. (laughs) And we were singing them and singing the parts, and we liked that in our church, and we had our favorites. And then all of a sudden, where'd they go? Uh, the churches we were we were in, uh, some of them were just you know going more for the uh, Christian artists' uh, latest contribution to the top Christian forty or whatever that is. And um, so what we've noticed is, and and how many of those how many of those songs out of the Jesus movement are you singing today? How many of those songs uh, that uh, were written by major artists in the '80s are we singing today? They haven't been able to stand the test of time. Um, classical music is a very um, good example because you, we study the history of classical music and we find that there are various periods. There's the Baroque period, and then you have the classic period, then you have the Romantic period, and then more contemporary music period. And in that, it starts to, to bifurcate into all kinds of, of, of different styles of music, um, none of which have really taken hold. So you compare when we get into the modern era, how many of those have stuck and people still remember? Um, and there's not many. You, you have to have time. You have to have time to tell if these are really going to stick. So why not go back to the standards of doctrinal purity in the, uh, in the late 18th, early 19th century, and on into probably the late 19th century is where you find a lot of that. Um, uh, Horatio Bonner and, and uh, uh, Wesley's and so on and so forth. If you go into the doctrine that those guys were were putting into song in a very profound way, you, it, it doesn't compare with what we're what we're doing dealing with today. So consequently, I think that's valuable to it, it having impact on our children, what they will remember and carry on to their kids in the future. Uh, and I, I just, I'm delighted that we have it. Now if we could just bring organs back. The, that's the other mm. thing that's disappeared, and I can't believe that they've actually removed the organs in churches, which to me is just one of the most magnificent things that, uh, that, that we could have today. Well, one day when we have our own church building, <laughs> uh, perhaps 
Amen. Uh, we we need we need to bring back. Well, that's another thing. We need to bring back beauty to the to the church. You and I talked about that. Like if it, we've talked about buildings, and and uh, you know, right now we don't necessarily see that as a priority. But right. one of the reasons we would do that is to worship better. It's this mm-hmm. idea of bringing a beautiful, mm-hmm. a beautiful building. And because we talked about some gone... of the older churches that are wasting away in Europe and the acoustics that they have in them and, and the design of them. And, and that's right. That's the thing is it's not size, it's care. And, and that it represents our worship of God. Because mostly hmm. um, we've, we haven't been looking for as much excellence in worship, especially when you've got all of the amplification, what you, um, uh, what, what you, what you want is, well, at least what, what, what we're, you know, really wanting uh, is, is really a sense of that beauty, that the sense of transcendence. And what's happened today is we've gone more utilitarian, multi-purpose. Uh, and, and there's, there's some practicality to that. You get that. You only have, maybe have so much money and, and so forth. But, um, some of it is really uh, about your priorities, and, uh, and and we'd love to have something that would be more um, uh, upward v- of viewing and thinking in terms of that. And part of that is also your your view of instrumentation. And so to have a uh, to have an organ, I mean, some people I'm sure are like organ. You got to be kidding me! No, 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 an organ. It would be would be wonderful. And 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 see, you got you got to you got you got to talk to the guys who know things. Uh, who who know what they're talking Let's about? Get the organ first and build the building around it. Hey, that'd be good. That'd be good. <laughs> that'd be great. Uh, well, I I just have to say that um, not many churches are thinking through uh, what worship is. I've appreciated Danny's messages recently on worship and what it is, and I know that's going to get fleshed out even more. But the the, the a lot of people mistake music for for worship and. We have to analyze what's going on with the music. How is it being used in the service? What's the purpose of it? And if the purpose of it is to manipulate your emotion to the point, I'm not saying emotion's bad. Emotion is a good thing, but it has to be founded upon um, more cerebral thought, I think, and things of uh, truths that we find in the Word of God, and singing becomes a response to those great truths that we find in the Word of God. We want to sing. We would naturally want to sing and praise God for His grace and for His mercy and for His justice and for His providence and all of those things that we learn through the expository teaching that we uh, are getting. And not only expository, but dot connecting. <laughs> uh, connecting dots with what's going on in the present so that we can actually flesh that out in our minds and say, boy, what's my what's my responsibility now? Music plays a part in all of that, in our home life. And it's not so much that it's... Um, that that any any particular music is wrong in a Sunday morning worship service. It just some are more appro- some music is more appropriate for corporate worship. If your goal is to get the congregation to sing in one voice of praise to God, picture the nation of Israel or the Israelites that were standing uh, in the wilderness there um, at Mount Sinai, all of them coming together as a family of God's people to sing and worship and bring praise back to that awesome and mighty God that has just uh, sent fire down onto the top of this mountain. I mean, we think we, we, we need to respond to what uh, God wants us to do in a corporate sense on Sunday morning worship. What you listen to at home, different thing. Is it wrong to listen to Christian music at home? <laughs> Obviously not. 
You can listen to whatever you want, and some of it is very edifying, extremely edifying and good to do, but it needs to be kept in perspective on what happens on Sunday morning, and that's why my goal is to is to see what I can do to contribute to that, to to bring more honor and glory to God in a um, in a higher form of worship than we would normally have in our daily lives, mundane, secular, quote unquote, uh, daily lives. Yeah, and Mike, you said it earlier. You said as you learned this music as you were young, this really good, high quality hymnal music that you grew in your theology. And so, you know, I would even challenge you that during the week. If you want to grow in your your view of lordship, if you want to grow in your love of God, blend it in. You know, start with three or four songs that are good quality. And there, again, there's nothing wrong with listening to other music. I'm just yeah. saying that if you're going to learn theology, and if you care about growing in your relationship with God, the way you do that is by playing things that are very high quality and high worship. Yeah. That's right. Again, nothing wrong with entertainment. Nothing wrong with enjoying God's creation of other music. Mm-hmm. Just be aware that every song you play that isn't growing you is one that could. That's a good point. That's so. a good point. Well, this has been a wonderful time. I really appreciate it. I'm sure we could uh, uh, we, we could probably just turn you loose, and, and you could probably talk for hours. And, and, and that's where you, you come in as a listener, right? You could, uh, you could take, your, uh, take them out to, to lunch or have them over. Um, uh, you might, you know, in the summertime, you might even uh, dare to invite yourself to go swimming at their house, like, uh, like my family did. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and have a wonderful time uh, getting to know the Scots. We, we really appreciate them, um, and we hope you do as well. And this has been a wonderful time. So I want to just thank you for joining us and being a part of this conversation and allowing us to get to know you better. Thank you. And I, I do want to open that invitation to everyone. As I told Danny, if you wait for an invitation from me, it might be a long wait. But our, our home is open, and we want you there. And please, bring your kids over. We would love it if you just call us and say, hey, what are you doing tonight? Come on, hey, we'll, we're generally very uh, enthusiastically welcoming of, of that sort of a scenario. So, Well, you heard it here. You heard it here. Well, but that's all the time that we have for Truth Today. And so we just want to thank you for joining us. And until next time, we hope that you will grow in your love and commitment to Christ and his church as we are sanctified in the truth. God's word is truth. Oh,